This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Great to have you along this afternoon. A very good afternoon to you, broadcasting again from my home base here in Guildford today. I've got just a couple more days left as a close contact in COVID isolation at home. So welcome along. Five past 12 here on the Country Hour. Shortly, a really good look at the budget and what is in it for the agricultural sector. And a Perth startup company has plans to set up a carbon dioxide removal system. And it's really keen to start buying WA farmland to get the project up and running. In effect, everywhere that's in the low rainfall uh, wheat belt that's cleared, is the maximum distance from the coast that is um, has high freight costs, that has the lowest rainfall, the highest production risk. These are the target areas that we're looking at. A little later in the hour, after news headlines at half past 12, you will meet Howard Carr. He is the co-founder and CEO of a company called InterEarth, based in Perth. First, though, now I know the big talking point pretty much around the country at the moment is rain. In the east, evacuation orders have been issued for several locations in New South Wales as that heavy rain just continues to fall. Some places have received as much as 430 millimetres in just the last few days. Parts of the northeast and along the coast have been flooded, including towns like Lismore and also Byron Bay. And in the last 24 hours, lots of rain has fallen here in Western Australia as well, but it's mostly been well received. The weather is from ex-tropical cyclone Charlotte, and if you've been on social media, you might have seen some of the floodwater photos at Mount Magnet in the Murchison region. They're on the ABC Midwest and Wheatbelt Facebook page, and you can see water running down the main street, and even some beer kegs just floating along in the water. Geraldton-based reporter Joe Prendergast has been looking at the rainfall figures this morning. Joe, how much rain did Mount Magnet get? They're pretty dramatic photos, aren't they, Belinda? Uh, they were taken yesterday just after a storm went through. All up, 36 mils fell really quickly in the afternoon. It did look like more than that, but the water came up quickly, went down quickly. I was speaking to the Shire president at Mount Magnet, Jorgen Jensen, earlier, and he was still trying to establish how many houses and buildings were impacted by the water. He suspected there would be some, but certainly not the whole town or anything like that, which is the impression that you might get if you just see those photos There is a creek near the main street in Mount Magnet and there has already been rain in that area. So the catchment was getting pretty full. It just didn't take much for it to rise and spill across the town. So hopefully things drying out um, okay there. But if you are driving in the Murchison in general, because of this rain from Charlotte, there's a number of warnings in place for roads due to floodwaters. So really important, I think, to jump on the main roads website or call them 138 138 and just double check. Or if it's a Shire road, uh, call them. If they're gravel, they're probably closed. Now, the floodwaters aside, I imagine the rain that we've been seeing over the past few days has been really welcome in the pastoral region. 
Absolutely. And from reports that I've seen, it's been patchy rain, but also widespread, if that makes sense, across the pastoral region. It's gone inland past Mekathara and some parts there just really, really needing a drink. So as you mentioned, very welcome rain. The Mount Magnet area, which we were just speaking of, has had between 50 to 80 odd mils. And really the ideal time to get a good rain is March. It starts you off for a really good winter season. They'll be looking for follow-up rain in a few weeks, but a really promising sign for the season. Uh, Speaking of floodwaters, though, a bit closer to the coast, uh, yesterday and overnight, there was 170 mils at Murgu Station. Now, Murgu's in the Murchison Shire. It's about 270-odd kilometres northeast of Geraldton. I've just got off the phone to Josh at Murgo before I came into the studio to have a chat to you. Um, The homestead's been flooded, the carpets are all saturated and they're just trying to work out if they've broken a rainfall record or not because there's an old photo which indicates there might have been a similar rain about 100 years ago but I'll find out a bit more about that. Uh, But just an amazing amount of rain. It fell over seven hours, just non-stop apparently, 170 mils. I can't even get my head around that. But I did note on the uh, Pastoral Rainfall Facebook page too, there's a bit of an expectation that the Sanford and then Greneff Rivers might start running soon. And that amount of water so quickly will be a pretty big test of the new dog-proof fencing, which is being built in parts of the Murchison. It was built with floodgates, so Hopefully an inspection that happens when things dry out a bit turns out that um, it's it's okay, but it certainly will be a big test. Yeah, fingers crossed that those floodgates pass the test. Uh, closer to the coast, Joe, how has the weather fed? Well, we did have a text through here at the ABC in Geraldton from a person at Canna, which if you're not sure where that is, that's about 150 k's southeast of Geraldton. That was saying they've had 245 mils all up from Charlotte. I just wanted to double check that though, make sure that it was correct. It wasn't a typo, but I wasn't able to get a hold of them. So maybe just pop a little star next to that figure. But there has been some really great falls uh, around the place. It's setting people up pretty nicely for a good start. Further south at Dandarigan, there's been a lot of rain. 70 mils over 48 hours was recorded at AgriFresh near Dandarigan, which has uh, citrus and mango trees. Luckily... They've just finished picking their mangoes. They wrapped that up about a week ago. So as you can imagine, Managing Director Joseph Ling is feeling pretty relieved. The last 48 hours, we, we got 70 mil dump on our property. I know there are pockets of uh, Mora and Dandarigan just don't get much of a rain at all. But where we are, we have about 70 mil. And we got, I mean, rain is one thing, but we have experienced a lot of uh, gusty wind through the property as well. 70 mil in the last two days is a lot for us to take in. Yeah, and so it's been isolated, has it? Some of your neighbours haven't had the rain? Yeah, and um, obviously it passes through some of the properties and we can see evidently on the road there are a lot of water sitting down there still. I think that there are branches on the roads got blown by the wind and uh, the water probably would take a few days to subside. And, um, in that short amount of time where we are, it's it just no good. Uh, thankfully for where, what we do, we just finished our mango season. So all the mango has been picked. Uh, if not, we're going to have a lot of fruit on the ground. What has the wind and rain done to the orchard? Um, at the moment, we are just um, settling it down. 
straining it out a little bit because uh, we are we have some of the young trees in the ground. We do not want the water to be sitting down there for too long. Uh, that would that would cause a little bit of root rot into our uh, our new planting. Uh, but at the moment, observations uh, from the assessment this morning, we have not seen any major damage on both the infrastructure and the trees. Uh, so thankfully, we have not seen a lot of trees got pushed down. But we lose a little bit of uh, fruit drop, not a lot, just pockets of it, some fruit drop uh, from the citrus crop that we are about to take off uh, in about two months' time. And the citrus, have you lost a lot of fruit on, on those trees? Uh, from what we observe and assess this morning, not a lot. There are smaller fruits, maybe smaller than the golf ball size. Uh, we're not able to hold too strongly to the trees. Yes, we lost some of them, but in overall, I think it's still okay, still manageable. That amount of rain in that short period of time, you've mentioned that it's too much. What is the, the negative impact that it has? Especially for where we are, some of the drainage system is not that great. Within our soil profile, we have a little bit of a pen, which will hold a lot of water in there for weeks. So what we do not want is some of the root rot to our trees. And certainly it will do a little bit of uh, erosions to some of the root system that we have internally as well. So... We do not want that. Uh, we don't mind, you know, your, you know, 10, 15 mil every now and then, but a big downpour of such is not a good thing. Is the risk now that it will continue to rain and, and the soil will just stay wet? Yeah. And for what we know, for a longer term forecast for the winter, it's likely to be a wet winter this year. So we're looking into any drainage system that we need to create, uh, making sure that we got a ability to pull the water out of the uh, soil profile really quickly. Joseph Ling, he's from Agrifesh and he was speaking to Lucinda Jose. Agrifesh is based in Dandarigan and an important to note that the Dandarigan Shire says there has been significant river rises in the area from all the rain and a warning for you just to be aware that flooding is possible and just to be prepared to move equipment and livestock. Quarter past 12. You're with Belinda Baraschetti for the WA Country Hour on ABC Radio WA. Great to have you along this afternoon and turning the spotlight now to last night's federal budget. After all the speeches and announcements, National Rural Reporter Kath Sullivan caught up with the Federal Agriculture Minister, David Littleproud. A couple of the major lobby groups, I think, described it as steady and stable. They were frustrated there wasn't more funding for biosecurity. In particular, the NFF pointed out the risks of lumpy skin disease. Have you been overlooked by some of the other portfolios? Well, a billion dollars into biosecurity, and I think that's ignorance from the NFF. Uh, We've put $15 million into lumpy skin. It's not even in the country. Uh, We've sent our chief veterinary officer to Indonesia, and now on to Singapore to make sure that we can work constructively with them. But we're putting boots on the ground in northern Australia because this thing will blow in. <clears throat> it's not going to come in through our ports. It's actually going to blow in. And so putting uh, $60-plus million into more boots on the ground in terms of surveillance uh, is, at this stage, all we can do. Otherwise, you'd just be spending money on lumpy skin that we don't have. So that's ignorance about understanding the threat. We see it as a real threat, but we're taking the steps and the department is giving us the advice, the scientists are giving us advice, not sideline critics that don't understand the science. Just on biosecurity, a few budgets back now, you announced a levy on containers, on shipping containers coming into the country that would fund our biosecurity response. Now, I understand that was put on hold as 
part of Australia's response to the pandemic. Now that we're living with COVID-19, can we expect to see that levy come back? We're working through the final stages of a cost recovery model that's working with industry, and that's now being finalised. So we've gone through the consultation process, and the consultation process is about letting industry understand their level of risk that they pose to Australian Mm -hmm. agriculture, each industry specifically, and then a cost recovery model of what it costs the Australian taxpayer to actually inspect. So those those final stages of discussion are happening as we speak. They understand, and in fact they've been more than forward-leaning on this because they understand we're going from around 5 million containers to about 8.5 million containers by the end of the decade. And so we're going to constrain their business if, if we don't have a, a biosecurity system that can keep up with that. And they know they're the ones that are posing the risk. So that's why we're making sure that those that, give, that pose the greatest risk pay the most. Talking about market access, you've just given a speech in which you mentioned all of the supermarkets, including your favourite, the big German, Aldi. You had an ACCC inquiry into into the fresh produce supply chains last year. Is there more to be done in this space? Uh, there is, and this is where there was an extra $5.4 million in the last budget around making sure we work through the market mechanisms. In fact, we've been engaging with industry around what that might look like, and the diversity of industry adds to the complexity of that. So the horticulture sector has different requirements to what the dairy sector, and you know, um, probably one of the biggest achievements I've ever had is to break the dollar litre milk, taking on the two big supermarkets and the big German uh, when they were just doing our dairy farmers over. And I still don't think they're, they're actually giving them a fair deal at the moment. So this is where I think the ACCC needs to, to grow some teeth and they haven't. Uh, and so what I think we need to do is continue on this path when that $5.4 million is about showing that there is still huge gaps there. And the only way uh, to, to fix that is with regulation over the supermarkets uh, and to make sure that farmers get a fair share. They're not looking for charity. They're just looking for fair prices. And that's what I don't believe that the supermarkets are giving them at the moment. Okay, and we're getting the wind up here, but I do want to ask you about um, some other portfolio issues, including Northern Australia. Last night's budget included more than $7 billion over 11 years for a fund which sounds a little bit like a cross between the National Water Grid Authority and NAIF. Do we really need another fund so that the nationals can announce more infrastructure projects in, let's face it, they're all seats being targeted by the coalition? It's all in areas where Australia is underdeveloped. Why wouldn't we put infrastructure where the exponential growth of Australian agriculture of Australia's economy can happen? Who cares what seat it is? No, I don't think we're looking at seats. We're looking at opportunities. If we've learnt nothing from COVID-19, it was the resource and agriculture sector that paid the bills. Uh, And that's what I think Australia's awoken to. It's us that needs the investment. So this will complement what's happening in Northern Australia. It'll working with our regions of growth. It'll complement the NAIF. The NAIF is, is a loans pro- product as well as an equity product. In fact, we put an extra $2 billion into the NAIF as well. So we take that up to $7 billion, such as the investment. Why don't you just spend that, first of all? Well, those are private projects. This is about making sure that the, the supply chain gaps with infrastructure are filled in. That's, that's de-risking Northern Australia, is actually taking away those infrastructure gaps that are holding back projects from getting up, getting product from the paddock to the port or from the pit to the port. And, and they're not investing because we don't have the roads or the rail to be able to do it. And so what we're doing is creating infrastructure for that to happen. That'll complement Northern Australia. It's in addition to that. And this is where Australia's economy is going to go forward in any exponential way is in Northern Australia. Would Michael McCormack have been able to secure that if he was still the leader? Yes. 
just finally, as I'm talking to you, Lismore is being evacuated for the second time in 24 hours. Has the federal government's response to the flooding there been appropriate? Uh, to date it has, and there'll be more announcements as I understand. Kevin Hogan um, has done an exemplary job, not just during the disaster, but in making sure that the government understands the scale of this. I saw it firsthand, and being a former emergency service minister, this is a scale of concentration, of devastation I haven't seen before. I went through the bushfires and many others, and that was horrible, and I, it doesn't take away from me the devastation that anyone else has endured. But the concentration and scale of this in Lismore and, and those uh, outlying outlets um, is significant and one in which we're going to have to continue to evolve with. Agriculture Minister David Littleproud speaking to Kath Sullivan earlier today. And a response from Labor's Shadow Minister Julie Collins is expected a little later today too. 21 past 12 here on the Country Hour. What do you make of the budget? What jumps out at you? Would you have liked more funding going towards biosecurity or some sort of effort to reduce input costs or maybe increase farm wages? Or are you now just looking at the prize, the election promises That'll be on their way. Let me know your thoughts this afternoon. Zero double four eight nine double two six zero four to text through and have your say. That's zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. Twenty two past twelve. Well, National Farmers Federation CEO Tony Ma is pretty happy with the funding commitments for regional development in this year's federal budget. But as Kath Sullivan was hinting at in her chat with the Minister, he would have liked to have seen more long-term planning and funding committed to biosecurity. Biosecurity is an ever-present danger and, and risk. Our view is that we are not well enough prepared for uh, the risks that are coming increasingly coming I have to say from um, the northern part of the globe so well let's have a look at the last 12 months alone what are some of the incursions that we have actually seen well we've seen uh, capra beetle we have now got uh, worryingly lumpy skin disease coming from southern parts of Asia northern part north to north of Australia and uh, we're extremely worried about that we've got you know other diseases that are coming uh, further south than they ever have been and It's our view that we have to put in place measures and funding and resources now before these diseases actually impact on uh, Australian agriculture from a domestic production point of view, but from an export point of view. We're export orientated and we're very proud of our pest and disease-free status. Uh, We have to put resources and investment into that status now before these diseases hit our shores. What would be an appropriate spend the dollar figure, you know, we don't necessarily have, is it, is it 15, is it 60, is it 160? What we need is a commitment from government around a long-term sustainable funding model. Can you ever fully eradicate the risk? Probably not, but we, at the moment we haven't got the right measures in place to reduce the risks. Lumpy skin disease is on our doorstep and it will mean a significant disruption if it ever gets here. Tony Ma, he's the Chief Executive Officer of the National Farmers Federation. And just on the topic of lumpy skin disease, a little later in the hour, just before the Katanning sheep market details, you're going to hear from Dr Andrew Tung from the Australian Department of Agriculture. And he's going to fill you in on what they're doing to prepare for the threat of lumpy skin disease coming into Australia. 24 past 12. Well, Grain Growers Chair Brett Hosking says the telco spend was a highlight of last night's budget. 
but he's hoping election commitments will deliver more for the farm sector. Uh, look, it was a good budget in terms of just um, continuing to maintain what we're achieving at the moment, to continue to focus on, on little ways in which we can expand and improve on what we're doing. There was some money there for telecommunications, which is always a win, particularly for our grain growers who farm in the most remote areas of Australia, need that communication. I think it's centre. about $800 million for 8,000 kilometres of roads to have mobile coverage, uh, roads and adjacent properties. Yeah, along, along some of our key freight routes, so that's really important to make sure I, you know, our roads and our supply chains are safe, but also that the farmers along there can have access to telecommunications as well. Were you looking for more funding? It's an interesting one. We, we didn't know quite what to expect. We, we have a sneaking suspicion there could be an election looming, <laughs> so we're kind of thinking that they'll probably want to save a, a little bit of powder for that, um, and hopefully that's what they've done. Hopefully we're going to see some big announcements for agriculture coming out of the federal elections. Things that will grow our productivity will kind of supercharge us. We've got growers with a lot of concerns around rising input costs and what they're going to mean if, if we do have a what tough year. What can the government do about that? Well, probably in the short term, there's not a lot, um, to, to be honest. But thinking long term, you know, we don't manufacture a lot of our fertiliser here at all. In fact, virtually none now. Um, so boosting our, our domestic manufacturers of, of fertilisers, of some of the chemicals we use, thinking about fuel security and how we make sure, um, you know, it can be more reliable for, for growers in particular, particularly at peak critical times, um, even parts and machinery. Grain growers, Brett Hosking speaking to Kath Sullivan. 26 past 12. Well, one of the headline-grabbing announcements in the federal budget was the temporary reduction in the fuel excise. It's going to be halved to 22 cents per litre for six months. And I'm sure if you're in the trucking industry, you'll be pretty happy with that. CEO of the Western Roads Federation, Cam Dumsey, says any reduction in costs is welcome. It's, it's a price relief. It's a bit of pressure off us, and look, anything helps at the moment. We're under the industry is under so much stress. We're up 60 cents a litre on diesel since the start of the year. Diesel costs about a third of your operating costs for a transport company. Anything, anything that can take pressure off our industry at the moment is welcomed. So you know we we need help. The the reduction is only for six months. Do you think that's going to be long enough? Uh, look. Right at the moment, I don't think anybody could forecast what the, the fuel prices are going to be. You know, obviously, hopefully, they'll review it in six months' time and we can see where where the fuel prices are sitting at. Did you think the new budget adequately addresses infrastructure and road safety issues that transport workers face every day? Look, I think it's a step in the right direction. It's part of an ongoing package of things. I think nationally, what they're spending about $12 billion. A couple of things that really stand out, the $140 million into Western Australia for regional road safety uh, program, you're seeing that in the widening of our roads. You're seeing it when they're putting sealing the shoulders and putting the audible strips on the fog lines. That's a great initiative. That's very welcome. And there's a number of regional projects in there as well, which, you know, everything helps. Not only does it improve the productivity of our industry, but helps keep local people employed. So that's always welcome. Were there any projects that were left off the budget that you believe should have been included? Uh, look, the one we there's probably fifteen thousand projects we'd like heavy vehicle rest areas we'd certainly like expanded, and also the uh, removal of all the single lane bridges on the Great Northern Highway that they still remain priorities for us. And the budget also addresses supply chain resilience. Tell us about that. Yes, look, this one has obviously become topical with the rail line being washed out for a month at the start of in January, uh, late January. 
But, you know, from the road transport sector, I think what a lot of people sort of haven't acknowledged is it's on two occasions in the last three years, I think it is, we have been totally isolated from the East Coast by road. We've had the Great Northern cut simultaneous with the Great Central being cut, with the Air Highway being cut. In some cases from cyclones, rain events and or bushfires. Now that's happened twice. That's severed us totally from the east. Along with rail, we have to build resilience. Whether we believe in climate change or not, those impacts on our supply chains are increasing and we've experienced throughout February what the consequences are when our supply chains aren't resilient enough to cope with weather impacts. So any acknowledgement of that need is a welcome one? Oh, look, absolutely. We've been pushing that Western Australians for some time. And I certainly think, you know, welcome the government bringing that to the fore within the budget. Cam Dumasey, he's the CEO of the Western Roads Federation and he was speaking to Kyle Poletto, 29 past 12. And also in last night's budget announcements, $400 million has been earmarked for the sealing of the Tanami Road, which goes from Halls Creek in the Kimberley to Alice Springs in the Northern Territory. Malcolm Edwards is the Halls Creek Shire president and says if that road does eventually get sealed, it's going to benefit the whole community as well as the mining and pastoral industries. Down the Tanami Road, that's on the West Australian Northern Territory side, there is, there is about 2,000 Aboriginal people living, in, living down there and that's going to open up those communities. Obviously, the cost of, of living, the cost of providing services to them, jobs, all that thing. So it's going to be a real changer for those communities. Also, the mining. 90% of the mines in Australia are 10 kilometres from a highway-type road. There is that many prospecting leases and mining leases down that Tanama Road just waiting to go. Goodness knows what's there. And I can imagine when that goes ahead, when that picture mine goes ahead, it'll open it right up for the mining and also the pastoral industry. The further you got down the Tanama, the less liable it is for a cattle station. This unallocated crown land, UCL land down there, they reckon that if it was opened up, it could take another 50,000 head of cattle. So it means all this means jobs. It Mm. means royalties. It means money in the government's coppers, honestly. To play devil's advocate, obviously there is a federal election coming up and that may change the course of events. How hopeful are you that if we do see a change of government in Australia that the next government will will take carriage of this particular funding package and and proceed with it? (laughs) Well, I just have real. I hope so. I hope that the, the message has got out there. When we were in Canberra, we only we, we not only met with the Liberal government, we also met with Labor. So they've got the message, and just hope that the Labor government sees sees the benefits as as we have and and the Liberal Party. And just just finally, I mean, this must be pretty emotional because there has been such a significant lobbying effort over such an extensive period of time to even get to this point. I mean, how do you feel? I feel fantastic. I mean, <laughs> you know, um, it's been a long, it's been a long time. I mean, it's back in the early nineties that I actually organised a trip from Halls Creek to Alice Springs to promote the Panama Road and met with Alice Springs Council, and that's a long time ago. And from there, we've had various reports done. I've been to Canberra twice to lobby for the Panama. So, I know it's been a long, hard road. I'm now 
74 years old, but there's Harold, the Shire President of Broome, reckons when they open the, the road, he's going to make sure that I'm there to cut the ribbon. And even if you have to get me in a wheelchair, you'll get me there. <laughs> Halls Creek Shire President Malcolm Edwards talking to Jessica Hayes about last night's announcement that $400 million earmarked for the sealing of the Tanami Road. Now, that funding is conditional upon business cases demonstrating value for money and public benefit, as well as opportunities for co-funding. So... While that $400 million sounds promising, it's certainly not a sure thing just yet. But as you heard, the locals are pretty excited about it. Bob Ifler has just texted through and he says he would have liked to have seen some money in uh, this year's budget for the upgrade for rail to take the pressure off our roads. What would you have liked to have seen or what are you hoping to see in an election promise ahead? The text is 0448922604. If you'd like to have your say this afternoon, it'd be great to hear from you. 27 to 1, off to the newsroom now and it's good afternoon to Herlin Corp. Good afternoon, Belinda. A Perth naturopath whose brother was last year convicted of molesting female patients has also been found guilty of sexually assaulting women at the same clinic. Rodrigo Bascunin Cabrera was last night found guilty by a district court jury of six charges relating to five women who were abused during consultations with him at the northern suburbs clinic he ran with his brother, Mauricio. Mauricio is being held in custody until he's sentenced in June, while Rodrigo was also remanded in custody and is due to be sentenced next month. 9,754 new COVID-19 cases have been reported in Western Australia today. Three historical deaths have been included in the latest figures. 208 coronavirus patients are in hospital, six of them in intensive care. And WA's men's cricket coach, Adam Voges, says the success of the state's cricket teams this season has been reward for the hard work of all players and staff. Western Australia will host the Sheffield Shield final against Victoria starting tomorrow as it seeks to end a 23-year first-class competition drought. There'll be a full bulletin at one o'clock. Erlyn, thank you very much for that. It is 25 to 1. Still to come between now and the news at 1. Off to Katanning, Tracy Kilner going through the yarding and the prices. The yarding is halved what it was last week and the prices are still down again due to that lack of activity from the processors who are dealing with their own COVID isolation situations. Also, you're going to meet the CEO of a Perth startup company that's planning to set up a carbon dioxide removal system and to do that it needs to start shopping around and buying some farmland here in WA. In fact, the CEO is out and about this afternoon uh, looking at some properties and uh, pretty much looking at some of those, you know, low rainfall areas in particular. So stay listening for that if you're, you might be keen to get involved in something like that. First, though, it is time to take a look at the weather around Western Australia and Angeline Prasad with you this afternoon. Angeline, a lot of talk about rain, well, right across the country, really, but honing in on what's going on here in Western Australia. Is there still some rain about this afternoon? Um, yes. Um, uh, good afternoon, Belinda. We have issued a severe thunderstorm warning um, for parts of the uh, central weed belt um, and uh, the 
the Great Southern. So uh, we have seen generally 10 to 20 millimetres of rainfall in that area since 9am and uh, there would be more warnings this afternoon, especially uh, again across parts of uh, Central West and the Gascoigne. In the last 24 hours, we have seen some really big rainfall totals uh, through the Central West and parts of the Gascoigne and also through the Pilbara. The highest total we saw in the last 24 hours was at Mergu, uh, 175 millimetres. More has come in with 106 millimetres uh, in Yeba, 74. So some big totals there in the Pilbara. We saw uh, Mangina at 65 millimetres. So that was fairly isolated. The more uh, widespread uh, heavy falls were uh, through the southwestern parts of the Gascoigne and the central west. And today, again, um, we are expecting uh, severe thunderstorms across the uh, a large area of uh, of WA over western WA, um, extending from the southern parts of the Pilbara um, uh, into the Gascoigne um, and into the um, uh, central uh, west, and uh, also um, uh, through the um, through parts of the central Bead Belt and uh, and parts of the Great Southern. Um, we are expecting generally heavy rainfall, but there's that risk of damaging winds and the possibility of hail, especially uh, through the Gascoigne and the Central West, uh, whereas the heavier falls are more likely through the Central Reed Belt and the Great Southern. Um, so uh, that's the story for today. Um, o- over the next couple of days, we will see another tropical low move close to the uh, Pilbara West Coast. Uh, that would be during tomorrow. And then on Friday, it will move uh, towards the Gascoigne coast. So um, the combination of the previous uh, low pressure system and the new one that's heading our way, uh, we will continue to see this um, tropical moisture feed into western parts of WA. And what that's going to do is continue to fuel um, uh, these severe thunderstorms. Now, when we talk about thunderstorms, we obviously mean here and there. So it's not everywhere um, uh, across, for example, not everywhere across the Gascoigne because showers and thunderstorms are discrete um, uh, clouds. Uh, you you can get a heavy fall um, in one area and then 20 kilometers or 10 kilometers down the road, there'll be nothing. So uh, it, it has been here and there. But from tomorrow, uh, there will be, especially across the far western parts of the Pilbara, the western parts of the Gascoigne, and um, we will see more widespread heavy falls, generally 50 to 100 millimeters. So um, this uh, this continuing thunderstorm activity is not over. It's likely to continue into the weekend. Uh, so probably we won't see much easing until um, Sunday night into Monday for most areas. All right, and then so this afternoon then, Angeline, what are the warnings today? So today, apart from this via thunderstorm warning that is still current, there could be more this afternoon, especially for the uh, Central West and uh, and the Gascoigne. Um, we do have a... a um, a flood warning out for the Moor and uh, Hill Rivers, so expecting minor flooding uh, at those locations. Um, there's an initial flood watch that's been issued for the Pilbara um, and the Gascoigne coasts. Um, also, um, we have got um, marine warnings out for the Lewin and Albany coasts. Yeah, a bit going on. Thank you so much for that, Angeline. Appreciate it. Now, taking a look at the rainfall readings. So looking back at the last 24 hours to 9 o'clock this morning, much about Richard Hudson. 
Yeah, a little bit to get through. In the northern and eastern forecast districts, in the Kimberley, Signet Bay, 31 mils over two days. In the Pilbara, a bit of round. Karajini North, 26. Mount Stewart, 5. Newman, 15. Parabadu, 19. Red Hill, 10. And Telfer, 14. In the Gascoigne, Bullardi, 23. Bulga Downs, 5. Biro 7, Meeker Station 70, Minina 26, Mount Clare 90, Mount Narria 10 mils over two days, Murchison 17. As Joe mentioned, Murgoo, the official reading 175, regardless of what the bloke on the phone said to her. Ningen Station 8, Payne's Fine 6, Shark Bay Airport 5, Tangadee 19, Thunderlara 17 and Chewy Creek 17 as well. In the interior, Lorna Glen 9. In the goldfields, Kurarawalli had 21 mils and Barrow Island recorded 21 mils as well. In the southwest land division forecast districts, the central west, Alanooka 12, Aradale 21, Badgingara 33, Barberton 24 to 53, so across a number of locations, Bellandine 51. Berkshire Valley topped it for the southwest land division with 94 mils. Bindi Bindi had between 19 and 21, Binu 7, Balgada 21, Canna, the official reading was 6 to 7 mils. That's well down on the 200 and something that Joe mentioned. Um, Canterbury 6, Carnamar 31, Chapman Valley 6, Coolangatta 7 to 8 mils, Karoo 31 to 41, Dudawar 59, Eniaba 74, Iriju 10 to 11 mils, Arangi Springs 16, Urati 20, Geraldton had 8 to 9 mils, Gutha West 47, Howarthara 12, Durian Bay 26 to 35, Calbarry 11, Lanceland Defence 10, Latham 6, Minginu 19 to 34, and Joe, before you start court proceedings, I bow to your correctness as well. Moliscar 10, Mora 82, Morrowa 30 to 40 mils, Mullawar 12, Nabawar 5, Nambung Station 24, New Norcia 5, Perenjury 12 to 16, Port Denison 12, Riverside 13, Strawberry 20, Tabletop 7, Tarden Hill 6, Three Springs 20 to 26, Debraden 6, Whalabing 45, Wandana 14, Waradaji East 59, Wulgaring 38, Yandanooka 56, and Yuna had between 10 and 25. Then in the lower west, Julamar Forest and Lancelin East both recorded 15, New Nile 9 and 2J East 5. Then in the central wheat belt, Ardeth 47, Babakin 33, Balladu 5, Bonnie Rock 14, Burrakoppen South 27, Kadu 36, Gamaling 8, Grabble 13 over three days, Duradine 10, Kelberin 8, Cockadine, Mount Walker and Long Forest all received 6, Monongarin 22, uh, Muckenbooden 13, Narrambeen 19, Redlands 11, Shackleton 8, Tamman 6, Wyalki North 30, Wongan Hills had between 7 and 12, Woburn 17. And then in the Great Southern, Boscobel 12 mils over three days, Colorado 7, Corrigan 8, Magenta Dam 8, Newtigate 9, and at the research station, one mil more than that. Pingley 7, Wickermitton had between 5 and 14 mils, and Yeelering East had 24. So, yeah, fair bit around. Thanks for going through it, Richard. 16 to 1, you're tuned to the Country Hour on the ABC, right across Western Australia. And getting your thoughts this hour on last night's budget, what you liked, 
what you were hoping to see in the budget. This from Smithy, who says more rail infrastructure, both for freight and passengers in WA, both north and south. Just start doing it, says Smithy. And this also, how about instead of spending all this money on shoulders, we fix all the deep melted train tracked highways with the conditions of our roads battling to keep a road train straight these days, we'll just wait for trucks and trailers to start falling over before someone does anything about it. Still some time to shoot through a text if you'd like to have your say. It's 0448 922 604. Quarter to one. A Perth-based startup company, InterEarth, is trialling a carbon dioxide removal system on a farm at East Perengery, 340 kilometres north of Perth. Now, the idea is to plant coppicing native woody trees on marginal low-rainfall farmland, then every few years harvest the trees and bury them, locking away the carbon biomass for thousands of years. Now, the company has just secured half a million US dollars seed capital from Counteract, a London-based carbon removal investor. So now the search is on to find more farmland. Howard Carr is the co-founder and CEO of InterEarth. Howard, how does this carbon removal system work? Well, some aspects of it your audience will be uh, familiar with. We're just uh, looking for land to plant back dominantly eucalypts, but also some acacias, uh, trees that are are either endemic to the area or have been shown in trials to perform well in the low rainfall area. So we plant back the trees in rows. We harvest them with a machine harvester that can harvest four rows at a time. That harvested material is uh, chunked into big pieces, about 600 millimetre pieces. We take that harvested biomass, we dig a hole, we bury the biomass, we seal the chamber and then the trees regrow. They're all coppicing trees. They regrow and we harvest them again around every two years and bury the harvested biomass again and repeat the cycle. And where do you bury the trees once they're harvested? Well, the burial site is the tricky little uh, bit. We've done a fair bit of work, including our trial that is ongoing up in uh, East Perengery. So it's all about having the right soil type. So the Biomass decomposes um, under a number of conditions. Light is a contributing factor. Oxygen is another contributing factor. Temperature is another contributing factor. So we define our burial site to have no light, no oxygen and low temperature in in effect. There's a few other little bits to it, but those are the main contributing factors that uh, mitigate against the biomass decomposition. And in terms of the proximity to where the trees are planted, the closer the better? Would it be on the one sort of property? Is that how you envisage it? Yeah, that's right. Because, you know, transport is, a, transport is a cost. And so our average haul distance in our model, which is a good starting point, but you know, may well be modified for different individual sites, but it's around about two and a half kilometres is the average haul distance that we plan from the plantation to the uh, to the burial site. And how would, is anyone else using this method in Australia or around the world? Well, obviously the first part of growing trees to capture carbon dioxide, everyone's pretty familiar with that. But the, the harvesting, the coppicing, the regrowing and the burial is all quite novel. 
Now, Howard, the, the former chair of the Emissions Reduction Assurance Committee, Andrew McIntosh, has recently been highly critical of Australia's carbon credit scheme, saying that the carbon offset market has become a rort. Do you agree with that analysis? Well, look, I think that there's some elements of the existing schemes which are uh, modelled and subject to uh, you know, interpretation as to exactly how much carbon is being locked away. The good thing about our system is everything's measured. We weigh the biomass as, as it's harvested. We analyse the biomass for its carbon content. We uh, bury the biomass and we systematically come back and re-drill the chamber and resample the biomass in the chamber for its carbon uh, carbon content. So there's no ambiguity and no subjectivity in our system. It, everything's measured and is, is all uh, verifiable. So you took a look at the Australian scheme and decided to go offshore? Well, that's correct. You know, for a number of reasons, our funding is coming out of Europe. So we've got funding out of the UK and, uh, and Switzerland. They're very keen on uh, supplying credits into the European market. It's a much deeper market, more established, uh, less volatile, prices are higher. And then on the practical side, this approval of the methodology, they were very uh, supportive in developing and approving our new methodology. So you know, we just got a great deal of support out of Europe. I don't want to sledge the Australian system, but it's a fact that the European market is uh, is much more developed and uh, forward thinking. Yeah, you're listening to the Country Hour on the ABC right across Western Australia and catching up with Howard Carr this afternoon. He's the co-founder and the CEO of a company, a Perth um, startup company called InterEarth, and it's trialling a carbon dioxide removal system on a farm at East Perengery here in Western Australia. Howard, how is the trial at Perengery progressing? Well, our early results are actually have exceeded everybody's expectations and uh, it's really, uh, really absolutely fantastic. So in very general terms, we put around 40 million grams or 40 tonne of carbon into one of our chambers and uh, to date, 5.8 grams out of 40 million grams of stored carbon has been converted to gas. Zero has actually escaped to the atmosphere, but the actual decomposition is uh, a fraction of a fraction of 1%. So we're you know, very, very happy. And what other areas of WA have you got your eye on to expand these trials? I mean, you're in, it's Bullfinch today, isn't it? So that, you know, that's an area of interest. Where else are you looking? Well, in effect, everywhere that's in the low rainfall uh, wheat belt that's cleared is the maximum distance from the coast that is, um, has high freight costs, that has the lowest rainfall, the highest production risk. These are the target areas that we're looking at because uh, the trees, the endemic trees we know grow very well in these areas. And the existing land use, um, whilst they had a very good season last year and wheat prices are are good again this year. You know, uh, frosts and dry spells in September are just a, a production risk that never goes away, you know. And um, so we, we think that our scheme provides a, a you know, really great alternative use for the land. We don't want to, we don't ever envisage, you know, completely eliminating wheat production in, in the low rainfall area, but it does provide a uh, economic diversity to the area. So is the idea to just purchase the land or is this working collaboratively with the farmers? 
we want to buy the land, but we also have a plan whereby once we're de-risked, once we're in production and once everyone can see that it works and we achieve our targets, then we will be offering farmers a scheme where they, if they wish to, they could swap some of their land for equity in the company. And it's going to cost a bit of money, isn't it, buying this land because the prices just keep going up and up as, well, everything else does, but farmland certainly has. Uh, are you prepared to, to pay for the land that meets all the criteria? Land is, you know, approximately a third of our uh, our total capital expenditure. That's the land purchase. Then, of course, we need to uh, develop the land and uh, plant trees, etc. So just the purchase of the land is a considerable uh, outlay. That's true. And, you know, when you start talking, you know, uh, multiples of tens of thousands of hectares, the numbers soon add up. That's 100% correct. However, the big players out of Europe and North America that we speak to they understand this uh, global challenge to take you know, billions of tonnes of carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere in the next 20, 30, 50 years. And when do you expect to be in commercial production? Our aim is to make our first land purchases uh, you know, in the coming months and we would ideally be in a position to do our first planting in the winter of 2023 with the first full harvest coming you know, about three or four years after that first planting. So first credits coming onto the market in 2025, 2026, those sorts of numbers. Howard, great to meet you. Thanks so much for being part of the country out today. Okay, thanks, Belinda. Cheers. Howard Carr, he's the co-founder and CEO of InterEarth. Six to one. The Federal Department of Agriculture says it's working closely with Australia's northern neighbours to try and contain the spread of lumpy skin disease, including buying 500,000 vaccines for cattle in Indonesia. The viral mosquito-borne cattle disease was detected in Indonesia this month. And if the disease got into Australia, a number of trade protocols would be triggered with huge implications for live export and some boxed beef trade. Deputy Secretary for Biosecurity and Compliance Dr Andrew Tung told Max Rowley how the government is responding to the threat of lumpy skin disease. So um, our first line of action is to be active with our partners in the near region. So the Chief Vet Dr Mark Ships, currently in Indonesia working with his counterparts to help or assist the Indonesian government in, uh, in dealing with the outbreak of lumpy skin disease, where we'll shortly uh, have vets in Timor and we will work with Papua New Guinea. As we're doing that, we're working at a scientific level th- with the CSIRO through the Australian Centre for Disease Prevention on everything that the world knows about lumpy skin disease and working out uh, a whole range of uh, what we call vector spread models. If the disease came to Australia, how might it come where might it land, and those sorts of things. That will inform how we build surveillance and preparedness and also build our diagnostics capability because the key to this is to be able to respond quickly if we get it. You mentioned trade protocols if lumpy skin disease does make it to Australia. What happens? So um, Australia, once it strikes a trade deal with a nation, negotiates a set of technical market access arrangements protocols and our technical market access arrangements because lumpy skin disease is listed by the OIE the World Organization for Animal Welfare 
the protocols that other countries impose on us for us to send them our agricultural goods, in this case cattle, reflect those international concerns and arrangements. There is scope to renegotiate protocols all the time. One of the challenges with protocols, though, is once we open them up with other countries, other things tend to come onto the table. It is a trade negotiation at a technical level. And we don't have lumpy skin disease right now. So we need to be purposeful but cautious on the trade protocol issue. And here and now, what are the key solutions or or key things to addressing the situation in Indonesia and trying to prevent lumpy skin disease from making it to Australia? So supporting our colleagues in Indonesia um, with managing the outbreak. Um, We're buying 500,000 doses of um, the vaccine to use in Riau province, uh, working with the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade on that. Um, We'll continue to do anything we can to support our Indonesian colleagues. Australia has a long history of engagement at a technical level with Indonesia on animal issues. We'll be using uh, all of our capable, smart people working in the region uh, to support Indonesia. And then uh, we'll also work with Timor and Papua New Guinea. Uh, And as we're doing that work, we're also learning more about the disease and the spread of the disease. And there's also the opportunity to develop new vaccines. Um, My best uh, example would be it's a bit akin to COVID. You know, all of a sudden, uh, in a crisis situation, vaccines can be developed quite quickly. I don't think we'd be able to spend quite the amount of money that was spent on COVID vaccines, but we can stimulate new vaccine development. And that's certainly one of the areas that a number of people are engaging with industry about at the moment. Andrew Tung from the Federal Department of Agriculture. Numbers were down at the Katanning sheep market today. A total yarding of 4,403 were pinned for sale. That's down 4,118 on last week's numbers. So numbers were halved and the prices eased. Tracy Kilner, what happened today? Hi, Belinda. With processes still not at full capacity with worker shortages due to the quarantine, prices remained low. Lambs generally ease 20 to $30 with processors showing limited interest and most sales going back to the paddock. Poorly presented and lambs lacking quality were dismissed from buyers selling as low as $10 a head. A small yarding of heavy merino ewes and weathers remained firm, while a couple of lines of quality young merino ewes sold to restockers for $150 to $158 a head. Lightweight lambs weighing under 12 kilos, carcass weight sold from $30 to $88 Weights under 16 kilos carcass weight made from 10 to 119. The heavier under 18 kilo carcass weights sold from 90 to 125. Trade weight lambs returned 93 to 155, while heavy lambs sold from 130 to $165 a head. Processors purchased young merino ewe hoggets from 132 to 160 in a better quality yarding. The lightweight and medium store ewes sold from $5 for the very light score one ewes to $120. While medium prime ewes weighing under 30 kilos returned 85 to $145 with a fleece. Heavyweight ewes over 30 kilos carcass weight sold from 120 to $169. This has been Tracy Kilner for Meat and Livestock Australia's National Livestock Reporting Service. Thank you for that, Tracy. This just in from Salty Matt on the text. Anyone else seeing the irony of burying trees to prevent climate change using diesel machinery? The world's gone mad, says Salty Matt. Great to catch up with you today here on The Country. I will do it again tomorrow. Time for the news. It's one o'clock.
You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.